Good morning. How many of you are mad I didn't show that dramatic trailer? He told me to run. Anyway, hey, I know you probably don't believe me because I've been kind of doing a bait and switch for the last few weeks, but really, 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 I promise, construction starts tomorrow. So we should be excited about that. Um, but what that means is for all of you sitting in the smoking section, um, we're going to pull you down a little bit closer. Um, so when you come next week, the balcony will be closed. Um, so we are asking that, um, A, if you would please try to be here on time. It'll be a little bit less disruptive. Um, and if you're sitting in the wings, if you would come in through the far aisles, that will also make it a little less disruptive for everybody else. Um, and I would say, just I'm just saying, uh, you may want to get here on time because seats are going to be a little harder to find going forward. So... Um, do as you like there, but we would love to see you here on time. Okay, said enough. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. We are in the closing week of a six-week series on the book of Jonah that we've called Overboard. Uh, last week, if you were here, we talked about this pagan king who um, really uh, shocks us and shows us what it really looks like to be desperate for God. This king is so desperate that he's willing to do whatever it takes to save his people. We also showed you that he actually becomes a pagan king, becomes a foreshadowing of Christ himself. It was a pretty cool picture. But I asked the question last week, are you desperate for God? Have you become complacent in your walk with God, or are you desperate? And um, when I got in this morning, I get here pretty early on Sunday mornings to get ready um, for this. I opened my mail, and I had this email from a good friend, and I just want to read couple highlights from the email because it just blessed me this morning and I hope it blesses you too. She says, for too long I've been complacent in my journey with the Lord. I have been called more and more by Jesus in the past six plus months to return my heart fully to him. And I am now in that place desperately wanting to be with our Lord. I want to hear him, be with him, to hear how I can be more like him every day. Thank you for mentioning the word desperation for our Lord and asking, have we become complacent? My focus is so clear this week. All I want is to become like Jesus and to have a Holy Spirit shape me more and more like our Lord. Isn't that cool? So God is moving. I hope you were here. Yeah, you should clap for that. So, okay, we're going to have to practice something just so you know it's okay to clap. So if you feel like clapping, clap. We have Today we have something going on like a hesitant clap. You guys are all like... So let's practice once. Just go ahead and clap and get it out of your system. Yeah, that's it. All right. All right. This morning I'm teaching from English Standard Version, a little bit different than the Bible's under your seat. But you can read along in the Bible's under your seat and be able to keep up. If you want to read along, we did supply you with a little sheet. We've been doing that all week. Um, so just so that you know. also want to encourage you to check in on social media. If you want to, check in on Facebook. Let people know that you're here. Grace. If you want to tweet something, we encourage that. We're going to use social media any way we can to advance the kingdom of God. So Jonah, we're going to read all of chapter 4. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life. Just a little bit dramatic. Please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? 
Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, and he sat on the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head and save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for a plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity a plant for which you did not labor, you did not make it grow, from which, be, be, sorry, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for this study through Jonah. It's just been um, so great to see you move in the hearts of the people. I pray that you would continue to move as we finish up this series. pray that you would use the words that you've given me to uh, touch the hearts of the people. Uh, our prayer this week the same prayer as last week and the week prior to that, that people would leave different than they came because they interacted with the living God through song, through the opening of your word, through the conversations with the other people. Lord, would you just do a deep work in our hearts and may we leave here different than we came. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you read chapter four, um, if you've been reading ahead or if you've read this in the past, you read that chapter and you can't help but be like, what in the world? Is going on. It is really a bizarre chapter of Scripture. There's a lot of strange stuff going on there. So the thing that you realize is you read the first three chapters, and it is like this amazing action film. I mean, you could actually make a movie about it. Matter of fact, I'm willing to guess in the next few years it probably will be a movie now that all these Christian movies are coming out. But just, there's, there's all kinds of action and drama, right? It's just this amazing scene. And then you get to chapter 4, and it's as, as if this drama kind of turns into a comedy. Right? We have this pouty, whiny prophet. We have this fast-growing plant. We got a, a hungry worm. I think it's the only place where we got hungry worms in the Bible that I know of. We got this intense dialogue with God. The story is outrageously odd. But there is a profound application for us if we slow down enough and we pull it out. And that's what we're going to do today. So go back to the very first verse, chapter 4. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The question we got to ask is, well, what displeased him and what was he so angry about? The word exceedingly there is, he was, it, he was um, displeased, exceedingly displeased is, is also translated the word great. So if you go back and you look through Jonah, this word is used over and over and over. There's a great fish, there's a great wind, there's a, a great storm. Uh, the sailor's response, they says he had, they have great fear of the Lord. That's all the same word. And that's kind of why we even called the series Overboard, because the response of the people is always exceedingly great. And God's movement in the story is exceedingly great. But here we see Jonah's displeasure is exceedingly great, and he is angry. But why is he angry? He's angry because the people of Nineveh turned from their evil ways. 
He's angry because when they turned, it says God relented and he didn't do the evil that he said. He's angry because God didn't wipe out the people of Nineveh. It's a picture into Jonah's heart. It gives us a clue as to what was going on through the whole thing. As a matter of fact, he even says, that's why I ran, because I knew that's why I ran from you, God. And so he's angry because God didn't do what he wanted God to do. There is a strange irony in this story that I have not been able to shake um, really since we started teaching through it. And it's just, um, Jonah is ridiculous, right? There's no other way to, to say it. He just, when you look at him and you look at his behaviors, he, he, he it's crazy. So he is probably one of the, uh, I don't know if worst is the right way. He, when, when you took all the prophets and you were put them in a, in, a, in a line, he might be at one end of the line than the other ones, right? I mean, he is just a goofy guy doing goofy things. So here he is probably one of the, the least obedient of the prophets, yet he is probably the most successful. If success is turning the hearts of the people back to God, so there are these prophets throughout the Bible who do everything God says, and they follow God, and they may complain a little, but they're doing it. They're God and some of them saw almost no fruit at all. No one turned. God just left them out there to, to preach because he needed to get the word out. But here we have this crazy prophet who's, who's really not doing things the way we would think that a prophet should do things, yet God uses him to turn an entire city, probably one of the greatest revivals ever to happen in the history of mankind. It's a crazy story. It's, it, it just, it mind boggles me, but it reminds us that God is the one that does the work. The thing that it's reminding me is whatever's happening at Grace, it's a God thing, right? Whatever's going on, God is going to do what God is going to do. God's in charge. It reminds us of God's sovereignty. God uses this prophet to turn the hearts of the people towards him, and Jonah is angry. And his anger puts him in a dangerous place. One of the things I read this week, which I loved, I'd never heard this before. Maybe you have, it says, anger is only one letter away from danger. So I feel like I should take that and like maybe put a tattoo on the back of my hand or put it on the dash of my car. It might help my driving skills on certain days. When you're, right? Anger is one letter away from danger. It's true because when you're angry, you do things that you shouldn't do. When you're angry, you say things that you probably shouldn't say. And so the Bible says, you know, you're going to be angry, but when you're angry, don't sin. Because we're so close to sin when our anger wells up. Well, Jonah is angry at God, and he says in verse 2, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and a relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please kill me. I just think that's crazy. For it's better for me to die than to live. This is where Jonah tips his hand. This is where the story all begins to make perfect sense. We can take that all the way back to the very beginning. He that's why I ran from you. Nineveh needed to be destroyed. Here's the deal. This guy named Jonah, he is full of hate. He is full of national pride, and he is full of racial pride. He is entombed in being a prejudiced person. He thinks his people are, are special, but other people deserve the wrath of God. He is a, entombed in prejudiced thinking. He's anger, angry at God, and his anger has put him in a dangerous place. And here's what I want us to see. We all get there at times. 
where we put ourselves in a position. Sometimes we say we're, we're Christians, we think this way, we're special. And then we think of people outside of that and we become judgmental of them. And, we, and instead of people seeing us as a place of grace and forgiveness and love, they see the church as a place of, of harshness. Or maybe it's even how we treat people that are on the opposite side of the political, dare I say, aisle. Oh, oh. Right? And, and somewhere in our heart, if we're honest with ourselves, we're hoping that God will, will punish them or God will bring, you know, God will take care of you, right? Is, is that really what this is about? But it, it's a picture of us, how we can all become prejudiced in our own ways and prideful in our own ways. And, and that's where Jonah was because he wanted the people killed. And then he says, he says to God, I know that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting and disaster. And the question I ask myself is, how could Jonah express the character of God so beautifully and so poetically and yet miss the heart of God at the same time? How can he know God so well in his head yet not know him at all in his spirit? How could he be the recipient of all of that abounding, steadfast love and mercy and not extend it to other people? There was a miss somewhere along the way in this prophet's understanding. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was uh, martyred by the um, Third Reich in in Germany, Uh, but before he was martyred, he wrote a lot. And um, one of the things he writes about is a thing called cheap grace. Cheap grace is what gets to the heart of Jonah's problem. Cheap grace is what gets to the heart of many of our problems. He writes these words. He says, cheap grace is grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Living incarnate. If we look at the life of Jonah and we look at this story, and I've talked about this as we've gone through it, we will see that confession and repentance, they're not the same thing. Confession is this ability to verbalize that we've done something wrong. It's an important thing. We talked about it last week. Confession is an, is an incredibly important part of our lives. It's a way that we can humble ourselves. I can recognize that I did something wrong, and I can say to you, I'm sorry that I did that and that I sinned against you, will you forgive me? That, that's confession. I'm sorry I've, I, I've done this. There's an apology and a recognition that we've done something wrong. But repentance is a change of heart. It actually means a change of direction where you don't do that very thing anymore. Confession and repentance are very different things. So here's the deal. Even my dog displays this. So I talked about him a few weeks ago. When my dog is bad and I come home, I know he's bad by the way he walks up to me. His tail's between his legs, his ears are pulled back. He doesn't actually straighten his legs. He kind of walks like in a kind of hunched down, you know, like eek, right? He's coming up to you, and you know right away he did something wrong. Now, sometimes when I find out what he did, I'm so mad at him that I just let him kind of wallow in his confession. And sometimes he'll literally just lay at my feet. He'll put his head on my feet, as, just as sad as you can be, and he'll actually vibrate a little bit, like shaking What's he waiting for? He's waiting for me to say, it's okay. I love you. You scratch his head a little. Boom, he's back to straight leg, happy dog, right? Well, here's the deal. He's confessing he is not repenting. Because when I leave, he's going to climb on the table and he's going to eat the turkey. He's just going to eat. This dog knows how to open the cupboards. 
And if you, we have to put a rubber band on the, on the handles of the cupboards because if we don't, he opens it up and he pulls out the trash and he eats whatever he can find. Look, he's going to do that until he dies because he doesn't know repentance. But he does know how to confess. And we can laugh, but if we look at Jonah, if we pay attention, in a lot of ways, we are just like that. We make the grace and the mercy of God. We run to him when we're in trouble and we ask him to forgive us. And then we run right back to it. That's cheap grace. Jonah was in the belly of the well, of the whale, and he confessed, and he cries out to God for mercy, and, and God delivers him. He says, you delivered me from the pit of hell. So he knows about God's deliverance. He knows about confession, but somehow in the midst of that, he says, this is good for me. This is great. God, thank you that you saved me. Now, would you please just kill all those Ninevites? Right? It sounds crazy almost that he could do it. But he hasn't internalized this thing that he's received. For him, it's just all about him. And, and he hasn't gotten to the real character of God. That same deep-seated heat that, that created such prejudice in him, caused him to, to run from God, leaves him sitting on a hill, looking over the city, and stewing in his anger, wishing and hoping and waiting for God to wipe out the city of Nineveh like Sodom and Gomorrah. He seems to have no understanding of God's mercy for other people, just for himself. In lots of ways, we become portraits of this same kind of cheap grace. God looks at Jonah in verse 4. Look at this question. I love this question. He says, do you do well to be angry? This is a great question. Do you do well to be angry? Is your anger appropriate? Is your anger justified, Jonah? Hey, Jonah, is your anger helping you at all? Now, here's the deal. When you're reading the scriptures and God asks a question, you know he knows the answer, right? Right? He, he, he's God. So he, he knows the answer to the question. So why does he ask the question if he knows the answer to the question? Because it's not for God, it's for Jonah. He said, Jonah, look at your heart. Is this getting you anywhere? Jonah, pay attention to all that anger you have inside of you. Is it helping you at all? Do you do well to be angry? It's a great question to ask ourselves. The passage says in verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed. The Lord God appointed a plan. And here's what God's doing. God looks at this this wayward prophet, and he says to himself, look, Jonah, I want to teach you a lesson. Do you think you're angry? This is what I think he actually says. think you're angry now? I'm going to do something to really make you angry. <laughs> so he creates a living parable. A living parable. That's what the whole plant and the worm, it's a parable, and a parable is put in place to teach us about the heart of God. So, verse 6, it says, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it grow up over Jonah that he might have shade over his head to save him from his di discomfort. First thing that comes out of this little passage here is it's the first and the only time in the book of Jonah that we see the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, and God put together. And those are two different names for God. Remember we talked about whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. That's the Israeli name for God, right? That's how they would refer to God. So L-O-R-D. And then God is Elohim, which would be more the Gentile way of referring to God. And this is purposeful in the text that these two come together because this is the heart of the story, is that God was to use the people of Israel, the person of Israel in Jonah, to take 
the, the message of God, Elohim, to the people. So there's a clue in just the way this is, this is verbalized. So he appoints a plant. Think about that. Who's doing the work? God. God appoints a plant just in the same way he appointed a storm and he, and he hurled the wind and he appointed a fish. And we're going to see in a few minutes he, he appoints or he chooses a, a hot wind and, and scorching air. God is the one at work. God is the one doing all that, that needs to be done. It says that God appointed the plant. The plant grew up over Jonah and he had shade. And then it says these, these words, which is fascinating. It says, so Jonah was exceedingly glad for the plant. It's the only time in the entire story where Jonah is happy. It's actually, if you want to read into it a little bit more, it's sort of like Jonah shifts from just being this angry guy to now he's willing to give God praise. But why is he willing to give God praise? Because God did something just for him. Pretty selfish in his thinking. I know I still want you to wipe out the end of it, but at least I'm comfortable, God. So I'm going to give you praise for who you are. One of the observations that's easy to miss in this is it says in verse 5 that Jonah built a shelter for himself to relieve himself from the shade. It's pretty obvious that his shelter didn't get it done. So God provides for him what he couldn't provide for himself. It's a picture of the gospel because it's by faith you're saved through grace so that no one can boast. What you can't do for yourself, God does for you. So God provides a plant for, for Jonah, and now Jonah is happy. But the lesson isn't quite over. As quickly as the plant came, God's going to take it away. It says when, when the morning is going to come and the scorching day is approaching, verse 7, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. God appointed a storm. God appointed a fish. God appointed a plant. God appointed a worm. Right? At the moment that this scorching wind is coming. And all of this is there to remind us that God is in control. God is sovereign. God has providential governance in our lives. Look, Jonah wasn't mad at a worm, and he wasn't mad at a plant, and he wasn't mad at the Ninevites. He was mad at God. And we would do well to remember when we really burn with anger, we forget God's sovereignty and we get angry at God. We may misplace it. We may think we're angry at other things, but the truth is if you're truly anger, angry, you are angry at God because God is sovereign and God is in control. God sends Jonah salvation from the heat in the form of a plant, and then God points, appoints a worm to attack it. Some of your passages might say the worm uh, was to smite the plant. I love that because it's just a cool word that I never get to say. So the worm smites the plant. It's also a picture of the gospel, which we don't have time to get into all that. But one of the authors I read says this. God attacks the only good thing that Jonah thinks he has going for him so that he can get Jonah to see his own heart. The plant withers. The plant dies. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed, here's God at work again, an east wind, and the sun beat down on his head so that Jonah was faint. God's at work. He appoints an east wind. This is a, what's called a Sirocco, which is a meteorological phenomenon. And what happens is the winds would come off the mountains, and they would sometimes be as strong as 60 miles an hour, and they would blow, and it would be hard. And you would think this is the exact same phenomena that we have with the Santa Anta winds, which sometimes happen in California that move fires and, and those tr just 
horrific sort of ways, same exact meteorological phenomena. So you have these winds, and you would think to yourself, well, it seems like a wind would make it better. It's hot. You got a nice breeze. It's going to cool you off. But if you've ever been somewhere where it's extremely hot and the breeze is actually hotter, it's miserable. So we went to India one year on a mission trip. It was way over 100 degrees. It was hard. I grew up in Florida. I like heat. I've never experienced anything like this. But the wind was probably 20, 30 miles an hour, never let up. And the wind was hotter than the air. And so it had all of the feeling of being trapped in a convection oven. You know when, you're in a, when you bake in a convection oven, things bake faster because of the air moving? That's what it was like. It was miserable to be outside, and it, and it, was, just, it was oppressive. So that's what's going on here. There's this, this wind, and it's just it's horrific. So God's done this work, and, and he comes back, and he asks the same question they ask in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? Is your anger appropriate? Is your anger justified? Is your anger helping you out? Right? He's getting to the heart of Jonah. Jonah says, yeah, it's better for me to die than to live. And then God asks the question again. He says, do you do well to be angry for a plant? This is like the pinnacle of getting to Jonah's heart. Really, Jonah? After all we've been through, you're going to let your anger rage over a plant. You are angry over a plant. He explains to him, you didn't labor, you didn't make it grow. It came up in a night and it died in a night. And then he says, how much more should I not pity Nineveh, this great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons. Most experts say that's probably just counting the men. So that's where they get the three or 400,000 total people in Nineveh. 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. How much and much more cattle? The story ends with a pretty profound question. God asks, should I not have pity on them? You pity a plant, Jonah. Should I not have pity for these people? The things you care about are so trivial. They're so meaningless. You pity a plant, and you begrudge me because I pity the people of Nineveh. Here's the deal. The story of Jonah is not a story about a wayward prophet. It's a story about God. It's a story that tells us about the heart of God. So if we ask the question, what is Jonah like, there's things we can learn about it. But what God is really trying to do, he's trying to write a story that tells us, what is God really like? You know Jonah's right when he says, you are a gracious God, you're merciful, you're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The secret is, the challenge is, how do we make that truth go from here to here? See, it's not enough just to know, like Jonah knew, about God's steadfast love and his mercy. We have to figure out a way, we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit at work within us to move that knowledge that's in our head to deep in our spirit. The problem is we struggle with cheap grace. So, the storms rage. The skies turn black. You know you're in a dark place, so you cry out to God, and you say, God, I'm so sorry, and the storm clears. And you go back to the same garbage that got you there in the first place. Then you're a consumer of cheap grace. 
God's brought conviction into your life and you've said to yourself, I, I shouldn't be messing around with porn anymore. It's causing all kinds of havoc in my family and, and God, I'm done with this. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it anymore. And you feel the Spirit of God give you a, a release from that and you, you feel like God has forgiven you for it and then three or four days later, you're sitting from the computer looking at the same thing. That makes you a consumer of cheap grace rage on your family members and you ask God to forgive you and you feel God moving. You, you could have been a part of the service this morning and felt with what Mel was leading you to. God moved. God forgives me. And you go back to those same things. Then you are a consumer of cheap grace. And if it feels like I'm stepping on your toes, I'm stepping on mine too. We are so easily drawn in to be a consumer of cheap grace, of taking this thing that God did for us for granted and just abusing it. But it doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. There is an opportunity for us to settle into, to internalize what it is that God has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, the scriptures say that you are to meditate on the scriptures day and night. Why is that? Because when you really meditate on who God is and all God has done for you, then you become indoctrinated. It changes your very inner being. You begin to realize, look, God did everything for me. What I couldn't do for myself, God did for me. When you spend the day meditating and thinking about the cross and the the sacrifice that Jesus made for you, it changes who you are. As a matter of fact, it causes you to be a person who lives sacrificially for others. Spend the day thinking about the grace and mercy that God has poured out in you, and you will become a person of grace and mercy, extending forgiveness to people who really haven't done anything to deserve it in the same way that God extends that to you. We have to think about, we have to internalize this amazing thing that God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. As I've been writing the sermon all week, there's been a song that's kind of been bouncing in my head that it's an old hymn it says when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died my richest gain I count but lost and poor contempt on all my pride when I survey when I remember when I am mindful of the cross of Jesus Christ it changes who I am so the band's going to come up and John and Mel they're going to lead us in a song I want us to sink into the words of the song. That's why we sing. is because when we sing, when those words become part of you, go out of here and you're singing a song, that song is indoctrinating your very being. It's changing your understanding. It's moving what you know. God is gracious. God is merciful. God loves me. Good to know it. But it moves it to a place of truly knowing who God is. So we're going to sing. And I just want to encourage you to receive the words of the songs to allow them to minister to you. Now here's the deal. Some of you, maybe it's your first day at Grace, maybe you've been here for a few weeks as we've gone through this series, and you know you need Jesus. You've been feeling that stir in your spirit, and you know that life is pretty messed up without him. You're weary, you're tired. Here's my encouragement to you. Give your life to Christ. You say, God, I cannot do this on my own. I believe, I believe that Jesus came. I believe that he lived. I believe that he died. And I believe that he rose again. And I invite you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Can I tell you, in that moment, everything changes. 
pray that prayer. Accept Jesus into your life. Make him Lord of your life. For some of you guys, you just know that you have been a consumer of cheap grace. Can I just tell you, God loves you. He's inviting you back. He's inviting you to let go of that stuff and to leave it behind because he said when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Be free. No longer a slave to sin. Walking in freedom in the grace and mercy of God. So let's sing, let's celebrate a great series around the book of Jonah. And let's just see what the Lord has for us. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. 